items in the newspaper, one on Friday's magazine section of the Jerusalem Post and one in today's Jerusalem Post that related to the issue of smoking. On Friday, a conservative rabbi, a noted conservative rabbi, Rabbi Ruven Hammer, wrote a halakhic art piece uh, basically slamming uh, those who are pure halachis and, you know, in every other area of Torah, very, very careful and so on. Yet when it comes to smoking, you know, let's just say, for lack of a better word, a little loose on the, on the issue. And uh, so, oh, see, he, he really, you know, goes to bat on and, and lashing out on this, and deservedly so. But today, Chavik um, Knesset, uh, Glick, he announced that he's starting a hunger strike. Also, what's a hunger strike? Usually, hunger strike is like a last resort and a desperation of something. But uh, he wants to force the government, specifically the Treasury, the Otsar, to slap a tax on the unrolled tobacco. So, you know, today you buy a cigarette, it costs extra money because of taxation. But uh, if you buy loose tobacco in a bag and then you roll it yourself, it's not taxed. And he claims that many, many high school kids, uh, that's what they do. First of all, it's fun to do it on their own. And second, it's cheaper. So if there would be a tax on it, there would be a, somewhat of an incentive not to buy. Because many times when they do slap taxes, it holds off with some people. And, um, and that, that, you know, saves lives and so on. And he, and he feels that the only reason that the treasurer, you know, the, the Saro Tsar, the ministry, minister of the treasury, is not doing this because it's uh, the eve of uh, elections and he doesn't want to be held accountable that he raised taxes in any way or manner. So it's a political game playing around with lives of people. And to this end, uh, Yudha Glick felt this was something that he's a very principled person, as we know. And, uh, you know, he went on a hunger strike. But the truth is, the, the subject is not a new subject. Uh, the subject already became a subject in the world of Torah uh, back in the 1920s. Back in the 1920s. Um, it was already the Chavetz Chaim, the Chavetz Chaim who wrote about the problem of smoking, but there he, he was not aware at all of its relationship to lung cancer. He spoke about it in terms of addiction and how it is a surrender of your free will. When a person uh, you know, gets addicted to something, so you, you don't even make a choice anymore, but you just do it. And he says the surrendering, surrendering of the the free will is something that you're compromising the, the essence of being a human being. So that was something he lashed out. Um, years later, the famous mashkiach from uh, the spiritual guidance counselor at Gateshead in England, uh, Rav Dessler, and uh, this, I think, is found in his Mikhtav uh, Meliau. He was a chronic smoker, but then he weaned himself from it, and he writes about it. He writes about that it, it's very related to the tshuva process. And the way to get out of an avera is the way he was able to exit this uh, addiction as well. <coughs> and we know that there are two ways to, um, to do tshuva. One is a person just drops the averas like a hot potato, and tomorrow morning is a Shomer Torah Mitzvot. This can happen. The only thing is that there's a risk that the day after you drop the Torah Mitzvot like a hot potato and you spring back. That has happened also. You can ask anybody in Eishat Torah Yeshiva here who have the emissaries <coughs> at the Kotel picking up uh, lost souls. And, and, and all of a sudden the next day there are these kids who uh, you know, didn't believe in anything or didn't practice anything. They're already putting on Rabbeinu Tam's tefillin. 
But uh, let's see where they are next week, you know, uh, when, when things uh, settle down uh, and they come back to, from their point of view, their senses, are they still putting on tefillin at all? So, so that's one way. It can work. It has happened. Uh, my father-in-law of Allah Shambu, yesterday was his yard side, fourth yard side. So uh, he was, I don't remember having him smoking. I came into the family when he was no longer a smoker. But my wife told me he used to smoke pretty regularly. And then on one Matzah Shabbos, he realized that come every Shabbat, there's no Yetzirah to smoke. He never felt any, any Shabbat that he has to smoke on Shabbat. He never felt it. So he realized that if he can get through Shabbat that way, why can't he get through Sunday that way? And out of a clear blue sky, one Matzah Shabbos, he decided not to continue smoking. And that was the end. And that was the end of his cigarettes. The finish. And once that can happen, there's, you have to be strong-willed and so on, determined, but it can happen. The other way to do it is to exit gradually. And that's usually more effective, by the way, by scaling down until you wean yourself out of it completely. And even in the process of tshuva, there is this, this process of weaning out of a cycle, a life cycle of avirot, and that also has value in halakha, even though there's a period of time where it's in a transition, where not everything is up to par halakhically, but it, the direction is the, is the right direction. And uh, it certainly has an overall sanction as a person who becomes a choser uh, b'tshuva. So Rav Desla, he, he writes that uh, stopping to smoke is like doing tshuva, and he makes that equation, and he personally taps himself on the shoulder that he succeeded, and he's writing about it not because he's showing off, because he feels that others can learn from his experience, and therefore it's a worthwhile thing to write about. <coughs> so that was Rav Desla, and that may have been written in the, uh, in the 50s, uh, 60s, or something like that. The, um, the, the, the first one who really started addressing the issue of smoking, but from a completely different point of view and a completely different conclusion that it's a wonderful thing to smoke <laughs> was one of the great achronim known by his sefer, the Pnei Yeshua. And that's on the first side. Now, they may look like there are two first sides here because the second side is a tshuva, a responsum of an organization that exists walking distance from where we're sitting right now on Rehov Bruria in Katamon known as Eretz Chemda. Some of you, I know some people are familiar that there's a, uh, a minion on Shabbat of, in the Eretz Chemda institution and it's called the minion of Eretz Chemda. A lot of Brits daven there, this I know, because I was once invited to speak there on a Shabbat morning uh, in English and I was advised that it was not even cl- remotely close to English. <laughs> It was American. They told me I spoke in American, not in English. Okay. So they so invite Rabbi Sachs. He'll, he'll, he'll speak English. That's all. So that's the second page. But the first page has the normal headline, Ayishun Bahalacha. And the first source, source number one, is the Pnei Yeshua. Now the truth of the matter is, I happen to have in front of me six pages of notes, of, of sources, which I obviously didn't uh, Xerox for everybody here. But uh, because these responsum on, on smoking are lengthy, you know, you think that it's a, you know, cut and dry and yes or no, or let's say no, and let's get on with life. No, there's a long, long, healthy discussion about issues that revolve around um, the question of smoking. But uh, the point of departure is this Pnei Yeshua. Pnei Yeshua, his name was Rabbi Yeshua Falk, Falk, F-A-L-K in English, some people some erroneously pronounce it as Polak when they see it in Hebrew, but it's Falk. 
And uh, he was born in Krakow, but he became a Rav in Lublin, and then later in um, Metz, which is a German city, and late, late in life in Frankfurt. So um, he made the rounds a little bit, but uh, from Krakow he made it back to Frankfurt. He writes a Sefer Pene Yeshua on Shas, on the Gemara. It's an a, a, a unbelievable, um, uh, let's say, document, a long-winded document on the sharpness of one's mind in analyzing a page of Gemara. So much so that the Rav told me once that his father forbade him from opening up the Pene Yeshua in his studies at home because if you study the Pnei Yeshua, you stop thinking. You stop thinking. It's like uh, what they used to say about uh, one of the driving uh, uh, rentals. Leave, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Greyhound buses. Leave the driving to us. So the Pnei Yeshua is a type of leave the thinking to us. And in the Salvechik uh, dynasty, that's forbidden. You don't leave the thinking to others. You think. So they actually forbade them from opening up the Sefer. Now, it says, Mayim genuvim yimtaku, stolen water is sweeter. So the minute it was forbidden for them as youngsters to open up the safer, what do you think they did? <laughs> under the mattress. Right, under the mattress, right. The under the mattress. Bidiyuk, bidiyuk. So the Rav was um, keenly aware of things that the Pnei Yeshua said because uh, it was studied clandestinely. There were contraband Pnei Yeshua's in the house. So the Pnei Yeshua in Masechet Shabbat is dealing with an issue that glosses into a Yom Tov issue. Now we know that you're allowed to cook and prepare, do food preparations on Yom Tov. That's not a Chidush, that's, a chum, that's the Chumash. Right? That anything for Ochel Nefesh you're allowed to prepare. And I'll just parenthetically insert, the Rambam says you can even do shechita, you can slaughter an animal on Yom Tov, because there's no question, there's no difference, there's no, no comparison between freshly slaughtered animal meat than day old, you know, what's called leftovers. So, so if a Yom Tov, you want good fresh meat, so you would be allowed to shecht on Yom Tov. Now today we don't do that. Don't, don't go home and say, okay, bring me the chicken, I want to shecht it on Yom Tov. Don't do that. Because today shechita is already organized by the kilot. People don't shech their chickens in the backyard anymore. At least most people don't. And, uh, and, uh, and, and therefore, and you have professional shochtim, and they're obviously not working on Shabbos and Yom Tov. So we don't have this. So, and anyway, you buy a fresh chicken, you put it in the refrigerator, it's going to be almost as fresh the next day anyway. So, so it's not an issue. So, but, but in theory, you're allowed to do things for ochal uh, nefesh purposes. You open up a bag, whatever you have to do, because you need it for food. But then... Beit Hillel, as opposed to Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel said, Because once there was a, an opening, a, a, the Pandora's box was, was breached for purposes of Ochel Nefesh, so you can do things even if it's not just for food. Even not food. That, that's how we know that on Yom Tov, you're allowed to carry. Right? What do we need? You, you, have to, you, have to, you can't just stam carry, but you need it. I need my keys. Nachon Chan Shabbat in America, in places with no air. So you got a long, you figured out a way how to you know, go outside without keys on Shabbat. But Yom Tov, you can have your keys in the pocket. Yom Tov, you can take your talos. Yom Tov, you can take your arbaminim to shul. Yom Tov, you can take a baby carriage out. Remember, women with little children were scooped up in the house. With, with baby because they couldn't go out because they couldn't move a baby carriage in a place that they have an Arif. And we grew up in that kind of surrounding. Yom Tov was like a Ganet. You know, you can go out and so on. 
So where does it say Yom Tov you're allowed to go out? Because sometimes for Ochel Nefesh, you have to get some food from a neighbor. So once you're allowed to carry because of food, you can carry for other things that are necessary. It's called Tzorach. You can't just stam carry, but you need a handkerchief, you need some tissues, you need some this, you need some that. So you're allowed to carry. You need a machzor for, for davening on Yom Tov. So you're allowed to carry it. You need a shofar and roshana on Yom Tov. You can carry it, and so on. So that's called mitoch shehutra the Tzorach. Because it was already permissible for Tzorach Ochel Nefesh for purposes of food, so the halakha opens it up a little wider. Beit Shammai disagreed, by the way. Going to Beit Shammai, it's just for food, and that's it. But Beit Hillel and the halakha is in accordance with Beit Hillel, it's opened up to a little wider, as we know. But the word Tzorach, a need, is defined by Shvei Lechol Nefesh. It's got to be something that across the board, everybody sees it as a tzorach, as a necessity. So everybody really can answer positive to the question, you think it's a good idea to have tissues in your pocket? Yes. You think it's a good idea to have keys in your pocket in your home? Yes. You think it's a good idea to come to shul with a machzah for a Pesach? Yes. You think it's a good idea to come to shul in Roshana with a shoifer? Yes. You answer, yeah, if everybody, everybody, I say everybody, you know, there's always going to be one guy who's going to say no. But I'm saying everybody, 90% of Am Yisrael is going to say yes, so that's called shvei lechol nefesh. It's across the board. But if you have a scenario where a particular individual, this is really important to me, except nobody else in the world would do that. It's not a, something that's valuable or significant, then you can't do it on Yom Tif, Even though for you it's a tzorach. And that, that's, that becomes important. Shvei lechol nefesh. It has to be something that's um, proper for, for everybody. So now the question is, are you allowed to smoke on Yom Tif? Now, I have been in shuls where people have had smokes, you know, not in shul, but have gone out, you know, to a lobby, have gone out to the chatzer, and, and of course the shul's very careful that there are a series of ner neshama, because you can't strike a match on Yom Tov. So you have to have an existing fire. So, so there's all kinds of uh, candles, neshama lights, that are, you know, yardside candles that are burning. For what purpose? For smokers. For smokers, basically. And they're smoking. And the plenty of shuls till this very day, uh, this is common. Not my shul. Nobody in my shul smokes. Most people don't smoke in the weekday, but uh, even on Shan Yom Tov, forget it. Nothing to talk about. There's, um, I wouldn't tolerate it even. <coughs> so the question is, to allow it or not to allow it, is basically um, measured by, is it Shavet Lechol Nefesh? Is it something that's something across the board? Now, would we ever say that the majority of Am Yisrael smoked? No, you wouldn't say that. So then you must say, it's not Shavei Lechol Nefesh, and therefore, it's Asur to smoke on Yom Tov. So Pnei Yeshua, in his sharpness of mind, he's discussing a Gemara in Masechet Shabbat that talks about the difference between Rechitza, which is washing, and Ze'ah, sweating, which, which means a, a, a Schwitz, um, in the, in the, you know, like a sauna, a sauna. So um, the Gemara seems to indicate that on Yom Tov, there's a Gzeira, just like on Shabbat, you're not allowed to bathe, so on Yom Tov, also not allowed to bathe. Okay, why? Because the bathing is just because of pleasure. And because of pleasure, uh, that's not Shevel Lechol Nefesh, that's what he's, the Gemara seems to indicate. Some people bathe every week, you know, like they used to say about Israelis, they shower once a month whether they need it or not. There's a, the, the, um, you know, some people bathe more, some bathe less, so it's not something that's shvei and therefore you can't bathe on Yom Tov. But a sauna, 
that people do because of health reasons. So it's not that the majority of Am Yisrael go into a sauna during the weekday or during Yom Tov, but if it's because of health reasons, the majority of Am Yisrael are generally concerned about health issues. Health issues. So if going into a sauna, according to the Gemara, is because of briyut, because of health, then it's shvei l'chol nefesh. This is what the Pnei Yeshua says. It's shvei l'chol nefesh because Am Yisrael is concerned about health issues. One second, one second, one second. And then he makes this point, and he says, and that's why people smoke tobacco on Yom Tov, because it's healthy, and it's good for food digestion. So because it's healthy and good for food digestion, it's, a, it's, a, it's mutter, it's permissible. He doesn't use the word mitzvah, but it's mutter, it's permissible to smoke a Yom Tov. It's part of the category of Shevel Nefesh. See, the genius of, of, the, of the Pnei Yeshua written almost 400 years ago. Okay? Yeah, Rivka. Well, first of all, this, regarding this cigarette health if you look at old advertisements, doctors mm-hmm. recommend cabin soda, whatever right. kind of cigarettes or something. Number two, the Schwitz, People used to go there because they didn't have anything in their hands. That's correct. That's not even, a, you're absolutely correct. But, but it's interesting that the Gemara makes this distinction with regard to the permissibility of bathing on Yom Tov and says that bathing is because of ta'anug. It's a pleasure thing. Pleasure, pleasure. Not everybody's into pleasures. That's what the Gemara says. Look, we can argue this and we can say there's been a cultural change. There certainly has been a cultural change in this. Right, right. No, I mean, today, person sitting shiva. So you know, there's an Issa of Rechitza. Of Rechitza. So the Mishnah tells us that uh, one of the Tanaim, during shiva, he did wash himself. So they asked him, how can you do it? It's also, right? So the answer was, any istanis. What's istanis mean? Istanis means I'm hypersensitive. Uh, the Rambam tells us in the Mishnah commentary that it's from the word sonain. It's I'm, I'm, I, like like uh, freezing water to me. Like you can't take it. Is this is an expression which uh, which is a fusion of the word ani sonain. I'm istinis. I'm I'm cold. I'm freezing. It's, it means hypersensitivity. So Rabbi Gamliel was wrong. He said I'm hypersensitive and therefore I'm allowed to do this. So many of the modern poskim have said that today. Everybody is an istinist. Everybody's hypersensitive to dirt. And, to, and we are more concerned about hygiene. So that which was permissible to one of the Tanaim during Shiva might be permissible to anybody today sitting Shiva to wash basically. It doesn't mean, you know, take a hot shower for half an hour and somebody's in Shiva. For sure not. But a person sitting Shiva in the summer where it is, you know, it's uh, 35 degrees and the air conditioner broke down and they're, they're all schwitzing and everything, they're sweating and everything. And you say, you can't wash yourself just to wash off that sweat and everything? You must probably not allowed to daven like that the next day There's, uh, because of all kinds of requirements, uh, restrictions. So, so here you, you, you certainly can say that what the Gemara talks about, Rechitza and Ze'ah, uh, the difference between bathing and sauna, it, there's certainly a cultural difference today which would make the, the halachic application of the Gemara not relevant today. Now, in some circles, hey, that's heresy, what I just said. That's apicarsis. But I wasn't brought up like that. And uh, that you can, uh, you know, uh, 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 apply halacha today, giving, given the fact that there are cultural adaptations. I'll give you a great example. Great example. In third chapter of Masechet Moit Katan, 
which talks about Cholomoy. It's a great name for Cholomoy. Moed Katan. Mini Yamtuf. Right? Mini Yamtuf. A baby Yamtuf. So that's Cholomoy, because it's quasi Yamtuf. It's, it's Yamtuf and, and weekday. And the question is, is it more Chol than Moed, or more Moed than Chol? And I would stick my neck out and say, depends where you are. In Eretz Yisrael, it's more Moed than Chol, and in Chutz it's more Chol than Moed. And it's not an accident that in Chutz Ashkenazim, at least some of them, not all, wear tefillin on Chol and In Eretz Yisrael, nobody wears tefillin on Chol that uh, in Eretz Yisrael, it's certainly, there's a feeling of yomtuf even on Cholomoyed. And in Chutz it's, it's a day's work. It's a day's work, and it all it means it's like Rosh Chodesh today, another 10 minutes in shul in the morning, that you have to make sure that you daven a little earlier, because there's a, you know, laning and musaf, and that's it, or shanas, uh, something like that. So the, um, um, where was I? Rivka, where was I? <laughs> Fnei Shua, right? Fnei Shua. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh? Right. So Moed Cotton. Thank you, thank you, Jerry. So, so in Moed Cotton, it says that Ein Megalchin B'Moed. You now have to take Giluach. Literally means shave and haircuts. It's both Tisporet and haircuts. So no shaving on Cholamoid. Okay, you just take that at face value, and today you see people, no question, very religious people, who are clean shaven throughout the year. And a cholamoy, they don't shave till after Yom Tov, which means after nine days of Sukkot, after Shmini Atzeret, and seven, eight days after Pesach, Isru Chag of Pesach. And if it's Chutz Laretz, add another day to it, because it's nine days of Yom Tov, which is Simchat Torah, and eight days of Pesach. So a person who shaves regularly, uh, either once or twice, once a day, once every two days, and does not shave for a week, a week and a half, so he's going to have a beard stubble. And a beard stubble is not something that he generally looks good in. Um, so it, it, it's, it, it's one of the simanim today, when I see somebody on the street like that, I, I, I suspect that he's a shloshim. He just got up from shiva, and, and so on. So the Rav explained that when the Gemara talks about Ein Megalchim B'Moed, he was talking about what we call in Hebrew Lissader Zakan, which means beard trimming. Beard trimming. person has a long beard, and every month he just you know, takes his scissors and makes it look nice and neat. He grooms the beard. Sometimes a man goes into the barber and he'll ask you, should I do the beard also? So you say yes or no. You know, the difference is 20 shekel. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, so that's called beard grooming. So Chazal said, don't do that. Why? To force you to trim your beard on Erev Yom Tov so you should look like a mensch and not like a slob. That's what the Gemara said. The Chazal said, don't say on Erev Yom Tov, I have time, I have all of Cholomoy to trim my beard. No, don't be lazy, do it on Erev Yom Tov, go into Yom Tov looking like a mensch, and not what the Gemara calls Nivul. Nivul means like a slob. You know? So it's very important to Chazal feel that you should look good on Yom Tov. Very important. So the Rav said, in a full-bearded society, as was the case with uh, Ashkenazi Jewry, until the last 300 years, um, that was the pshat, Ein Megalchin B'Moed. But when modernity descended upon Jewry, Western European Jewry first, and then across the board, so people started looking culturally like their non-Jewish neighbors. Um, uh, so, you know, the, uh, the, the wearing of, uh, of, of, of uh, modern attire. So where does the word yekka come from? So today you say yekka, somebody comes from German Jewish descent. 
The word yekka means short jacket. And it was a pejorative term used by Eastern European Jews who were still wearing long capotes and bekishes and, uh, and in black. And they were looking over the shoulders of their German-Jewish you know, cousins who are now in modern short-cut suits. And they called them the jacket people, the yekkes. That's what they were, the yekkes. And means they culturally assimilated already. That's what they were saying. That's what they were saying. And um, so this was, it was an issue, clearly an issue. And shaving. So who had beards? So some of the Rabbonim had beards. Some of the Rabbonim had what I call a zecher to a beard, you know, a little goatee. You see pictures of the 19th century Rabbonim and so on. And you see they're basically shaven, but a little zecher, a zecher for a beard and so on. So this is what became pretty common, that the average person was clean-shaven, and that was called looking proper to go to work, and so on. You know, they would not have survived in a job in England or in Germany at the time if they would have come in with a long beard. It would not have worked. It's not like today. Then there was a time, Lahavdal, where in, in sports in the United States, you had to be clean-shaven. I mean, my favorite uh, New York Yankee team, if you had a beard, you were thrown off the team. That's it. It's as simple as that. There were players who came from other teams, traded over, and, and they had beards in the other teams. And all of a sudden, they come the first day in the New York uniform, and they're clean-shaven. Because those are the rules. Those are the rules. Everything's changed in America. Now you can have a, you can come with a strimal and a pitch. It's not a problem. It's a, you do whatever you want. It's, it's hefke. It's pashut hefke. So, uh, but but in, the, in the days of, uh, of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century... So a person who was clean-shaven was already very modernish, very, very modern, and so on. Um, and in the Hasidic world, as opposed to somebody who was modernish, modern, you were heimish. What does heimish mean? Like in the old home. Like from the word heim, home. Heim in Yiddish means home. Heimish means like in, the, like in the good old days, back in the good old days, which meant, you know, Galicia, you know, back in the good old days. And there, everybody had a beard, no question about it. So the Rav said that if Chazal would have seen a generation of religious Jews, religious Jews, who are clean-shaven throughout the year, would they have made a restriction on shaving on Cholomoyed? For sure not. For sure not. Because they were concerned that you should look like a mensch on Yom Tov. So what about the seventh day of Pesach? What about Shmini Atzeret and Simchas Torah? And what about Cholomoyed itself, which is Yom Tov? Then you're allowed to look like a slob. So a person shaves on Erev Yom Tov, and now five, six, seven, eight, nine days goes without shaving. The Rav said he looks like an oval. He looks like a mourner. And that's awesome. That's forbidden, to look like a mourner. So let's say a person, God forbid, is sitting shiva before Yom Tov. Like I said to my father, right before Rosh Hashanah. So it comes Rosh Hashanah. You don't continue wearing the ripped garment. So imagine somebody's wearing his beged karua, his ripped garment, all through Cholomai and everything. It's wrong. It's wrong. You're not allowed to express outwardly, externally, the Avelis, because it's Yom Tov. So Rav said, so, so it, while most of the poskim of the last two, three hundred years were busy writing heterim, permissive permits for a person to shave, guy knocks on the door of the Neid Behuda 250 years ago in Prague, and says, you know, they're going to fire me from work if I don't shave. So, so Nehemiah says, "Look, there's a thing called davar ha'avud that in a chalamai you're allowed to do activities that if you're going to sustain a major loss, you're allowed to permit it." So the Nehemiah permits shaving for this guy and for that guy because they were going to lose their jobs under the name of davar ha'avud, and that concept makes it all the way to Rabbi Shafranstein. 
All the way to Ramajah Vaishan. Oh, you're going to lose your job. It's a, you feel uncomfortable. Fine, so you can shave Machalamoy. But all, this, all those views take into consideration that the halacha still remains, but we have the authority to let loose a little bit because you're in trouble. That's, a, that's one way. The Ruff took it completely differently. He said that today, not only is it permissible for a person who's clean-shaven throughout the year to shave a cholomoid, but he said it's a chiyuv, it's an obligation. And if you don't shave, you're in violation of Simchat Yom Tov. So you, you have to have white shoulders to make that claim. But he had white shoulders. And, and, and that's a very, very famous psaac of the Ruff, which I heard from my father, Jean, years, years ago. I was a kid, I, heard, I knew this from already. Because when I was a kid, I went to Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva. It was a little from Yeshiva. So then I thought I was a tzaddik, and, and I was going to teach my father a thing or two. And I discovered that my father knew a little bit more than me, and, uh, and I learned a lot from him growing up. And one of the first piske Allah I heard from my father in the name of the Rav was that you're allowed to shave on Cholomoyt. Now it's in print already, and everybody knows it. It's a, right, my uncle Sefer, it's a, Rabbi Ziegler Sefer, it's, it's there also. But, but it's, it's in print, I can tell you, in the, there's a fine article on on Giluach and Cholomoid in Truman um, from Malon Shvut, 1982, Volume 2, 1982 issue. Somebody wrote a very fine article. At the very end, they quote Rav Lichtenstein, Rav son-in-law, who quotes his father-in-law, the Rav, the, exactly what I just said now. So it's in print. It's not something that's hearsay anymore. It's already Torah Shebichtav. And uh, it's not just Torah Shebaal And same thing with regard to how do we relate to changing Ideas, not just ideas, but changing attitudes, changing in cul- changes in culture, and changes in scientific information. How does that affect the halacha? Can anybody really hide behind the Pnei Yeshua today? Let me just look at the source number one, towards the end where it's underlined. Imkain nir'eh the ishun ha-tabak. So tabak means tobacco. That's how they wrote it in Yiddish. All right? Nami havi libriutaguf is for the health of the body, la akel hamazon to digest the food, ulitavata machal, and it gives a good food to uh, appetite for eating. It 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 uh, it somehow beefs up your appetite and so on. If this is what they thought in the 17th century, gizunta hate and 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 they. Paskin, and they gave their halacha in accordance with this, and the Pnei Shur says, of course, what do you mean? Mutter? To smoke on Yom Tov? It's, it's a mitzvah. I mean, it's, you can enjoy Yom Tov that much better. And to hide behind that today, in the 21st century, knowing what we know today? And Rivka mentions what they used to put on old cigarette boxes, so when the Surgeon General, in 1964, in the United States, it was the first time, they wrote, they had to write a, a warning, the Surgeon General you know, declares that cigarette smoking is hazardous to your health. That was the expression, hazardous health. Now, the, the language is much stronger. Cigarette smoking can kill. That's what they write, cigarette smoking can kill. And the knowledge that we have today, as opposed to 1964, impacts on the world of Shailot to Chuvot. So you take a look at source number two. Source number two is precisely Tafshin Chav Dalit. Look at the date. In the subject of smoking cigarettes, the seventh of Hanukkah. Imagine, I wonder if he was going to use seven cigarettes for Nerot. I thought maybe that was the Shiloh. We can light the Hanukkah candles. I have here something on my phone, the picture. It's, a, it's just a total Kiddush Hashem. We have a nephew in Hashemunayim uh, who's in the army. And um, 
he was in, in active uh, ser- service half a year ago in Hanukkah, and they were doing military training, you know, out in the doombox, boondocks, wherever they were, and it was Hanukkah, and they have to light candles. You know, you don't walk around in your military gear with a menorah and Hanukkah candles. So they use cartridges from used bullets turned upside down from shells, and they, they had some oil, whatever. They, they just made themselves, they lined it up, and, it's, and, and you can hear he's making the bracha and they're singing in, in, in uniform that they're ready to, in fighter's uniform they're, they're ready to go and here they're, they're lighting Hanukkah candles I said if there's no Safra Vasaifa which is Safer Vasayef than that there, there it was Mamash in one picture in one picture but I don't think Ramesh Feinstein was talking about lighting Hanukkah candles with cigarettes he happened to have written this chuva on the seventh day of Hanukkah and the date is Tavshin Chavdalet, which is 1964. So Rav was reacting now to the uh, new law in the United States on advertisements and cigarettes, and on the boxes, it had to say that the Surgeon General warns that cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. But maybe yes. So how does that impact on cigarette smoking? Malat Kvodo Yedidiya Nechbad Rav Aaron Kirshenbaum. Shlita, uh, you may know who Rav, he was Professor Kirshenbaum Oliver Sholem. He taught the Jewish law at Tel Aviv University. Big time He wrote about self-incrimination in Jewish law, but apparently had some kesher with Rav Moshe Feinstein also. So he writes, he bedvar ishun mikivan chashash. There's a possibility, a worry. that you might get sick from this. It's interesting how carefully he's with the language. He doesn't say it's suicidal to smoke. He says, you might get sick from this. It is fitting that you should stay away from it. It's very, very careful language. But to say absolutely that it's forbidden, because of the danger, and anything dangerous is for sure prohibited, because it's publicly accepted, it's already found in the Gemara, in such a similar case, we just read this passage this morning in Halel, God watches the fools. God watches the fools. It's a Masechet Shabbat, Kuf Chavtet. What's the subject? The subject matter is not smoking, but it's bloodletting. There was a procedure done in days of old that if somebody released some blood from the system, so he may feel a little weak for an hour or two, but it's good for him. They didn't know why, but they thought it was good for blood pressure. They, knew, they, thought, they, they saw that it was a healthy thing to do, that they obviously were not in a position 2,000 years ago to have uh, blood donations. But we know that people who regularly give blood, it, it happens to be there's a, a, uh, a benefit a health benefit, and that it does um, relax a little bit, blood pressure, and so on. So the Gemara there says, it's a nice thing to do, don't do it on Friday. Why don't do it on a Friday? Because you might enter into Shabbat a little bit weak. You know, and you shouldn't enter into Shabbat, you know, in a faint, in a faint mode, fainting mode. You be strong, and, and so on. Okay, and then the Gemara says, but one second, you see people are doing Hakazatam on Friday also. Take a look. You see people doing it. Sigmar says, Because it's publicly accepted. Nobody's yelling, don't do it. God watches the fools. 
So really what Gemara is saying is, you're being foolish if you do Hakazat Adam on Friday. But if you, the Halacha can't say Asur because everybody's doing it. Now there's a limit to this. Uh, you know, it would be nice to prohibit Lashon Hara, but you know, everybody's talking Lashon Hara anyway, so Shomer Ptahim Hashem, it doesn't work like that. The, 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 an Avera, that's something that's defined Avera, you can't say, well, everybody's doing the Avera. Everybody in the days of Bait Rishon was serving Avera Zara, so now Mutter? No, for sure not, for sure not. But if something that's a little bit gray area, you're not sure, and it's just a, it might be a health issue and so on, but it's ill-defined, so the uh, Gemara says, you know, don't do it. It's an advice. It's a recommendation. If you do it, you should know God watches the fools. That uh, you should know who you are you know, if you do something like that. So Ramayja banks on this Gemara Masechet Shabbat and says smoking is a similar thing. It's Dashu Bey Rabim. Many people are socially acceptable. In 1964, it still was socially acceptable, as opposed to today, where I can tell you, say categorically, it's socially not acceptable. In many, many areas. First of all, legally in public areas, not smoke. I've drawn attention to uh, local Makola people, or more so their workers, who are, you know, stocking up their stock in the morning, and they're puffing away inside the store. It's illegal to do that. And I go over to the manager of the store, the Makola, I said, you know, you have to tell him to stop. I said, I'm calling the police. Right. That's all you have to do. Is you're going to call the police. That's the last thing he needs now is a summons. You know that they had somebody smoking on premises. Of course, the minute I left, you know, he, he, he lit up again. But uh, you have to bring it to people's attention. There are laws against this, and the good reason why there are laws, because it's been determined that a person who smokes regularly, two packs a day, uh, so he has a 22 times chance to, to contract lung cancer as opposed to somebody who doesn't smoke at all. 22 times chance. That's not like a fluke. That's, that's real stuff. And a, um, a person who is, does not smoke but is in an environment of smoke, which means somebody in the family is smoking at home, somebody in workplace is smoking in the, in the office or in the factory, and something like that. So he's a passive smoker. That's what it's called. He has a six times chance greater to get lung cancer as opposed to somebody who's in a clean air environment. And therefore, and this is proven already, this is a scientifically proven. Ma? It's the air, cold. too cold. Too cold? Yeah, make it. Yeah. So, yeah. If, uh, not just the, you're right, it affects the heart, it's just not good. And today we know that it's just not good. So there are some Paiskim who've said, look, let's try to save the next generation and halachically permit youngsters from starting to smoke. Now, let's do that. Let's begin with that. You know, the adult population, they're not going to listen to us anyway, and they're habitually connected, so it's going to be, uh, you know, World War III to try to get them to stop smoking. That's not going to work. But if we can get the educational system to, um, to, to teach, to educate against it, then we have a chance. There's only one problem. What if the Rebbe in class is a smoker? How is he going to educate? How is he going to educate about smoking? I once had in Hashmanoim a, uh, I had a policy. I had a policy which was today more and more acceptable in the yeshiva high schools, the Bnei Akiva. But you have to realize that 40, 50 years ago that was not the case because from our community we didn't have Tamidei Chachamim who are already uh, going to be uh, Ramim and Rashi Yeshiva. So many of the Ramim and Rashi Yeshiva, even of the Bnei Akiva movement, came from the Haredi world. But um, now it's not the case. And now Yeshiva Hashmanoim, the Palo of is that anybody who teaches a Gemara share 
has to be somebody who went to the army. If you didn't go to the army, you can't teach my yeshiva. He had to be a graduate of Hezda yeshiva. And uh, we had a fellow who came for, you know, there was a job opening, and I came with very strong recommendations as a fine teacher, and I'm sure he was a fine teacher. He sits down in the office, and I told him, before we start, you're not working here, because <laughs> you didn't go to the army. So he says, let me give you a, give a shear, a model shear, you'll see that. I said, you're welcome to give a shear, and I'm sure it's going to be a great shear. But I'm telling you now, before the shear, you're not going to work here. Why? I said, because I need role models here. And we educate the kids that after high school, in some framework, whether it's Mechina Tzvayit, Kadam Tzvayit, whether it's Yishevat Hezda, whatever the framework is, you, the kid is going to be in uniform in, in the next few years, within the next few years. And that's what our education that we provide. So he tells me, I'll be quiet on the subject. He won't work against the policy. I said, I don't need a Ram in the class to be quiet. I need a Ram who's going to talk. You know, so don't tell me you're going to be quiet. You know, and you're certainly not going to advocate it if you yourself didn't do it. It's like um, you know, having somebody who's a Mechal Shabbos is going to educate now about Shmirat Shabbat. Not going to work. And if you wondered why the um, educational system in the United States, which is a very, very high-level Torah uh, education, except for one mitzvah, Yishu Veretz Yisrael, living in Israel, it's not on the agenda. It's not on the agenda of the schools and many and most of the shuls. Why? Because if the teachers and the principal, the Rabbanim, don't come in Aliyah, how can they talk about it? So you have a handful who do it anyway, and they're open to criticism. But they'll do it anyway, because they feel it's the right message that has to be said. But uh, the only place that uh, the kids can really get, you know, indoctrinated, if you may, is in camp, in the summer camps, like the Bnei Kiva camps and so on. So there they get a shot in the arm and it works for some people. Not for everybody, but at least for some. But why isn't it on the agenda? Because their principles feel that it's hypocrisy for the, for, the, for the teacher to get into class and start preaching Aliyah if he's sitting there for 20 years. And he can't say, well, I'm different. I'm on shlichut. You know, I'm here for, for, for permanent shlichut. You know, 55 years I'm here. It uh, doesn't work like that. Because everybody's going to say shlichut. Everybody's going to be able to somehow have an excuse of shlichut. And that's a real problem. It's a real problem. So... Uh, so here you have uh, uh, Rabbi Feinstein coming out in 1964 with a recommendation against uh, smoking. That's in 64. But then in source number three, things progressed to the year Tafshin Mem Aleph. Tafshin Mem Aleph is 1981. 1981. So from 64 to 81, a lot of research was done, and uh, we know definitively about the relationship between smoking and lung cancer. The Shiloh came from a boy... A boy, an Avreich, his name was Ruven Sofer. <laughs> he calls him already Malat Podo, a Rav Gaon Ruven Sofer. I guess he was sitting in Lakewood for a few years already, and you become a Rav Gaon. But um, he was not a smoker, but he was complaining to Rabbi Shef Feinstein that he would tell the fellas in the Beis to stop smoking because it's dangerous to him. Mainly, you want to jump off the roof, that's your problem. But why do I have to come along with you? That was the claim. And Ramosha writes a letter that was official, became policy of the Lakewood Yeshiva, in the future, no more smoking in the Bishmerish. In other words, Rabbi accepted the claim of the boy, boy, man, whatever, this fellow, this Kolul fellow in Lakewood. And, and Rabbi uses a halachic um, concept found in Masechah Bobakama of what's called mazik biyadayim. Mazik biyadayim means that you did it with your hands. You, you, if a person shoots somebody, you can't say, I didn't do anything, the bullet killed him, what do you want from me? 
Right? You can't say that. You can't say that. There, there are certain things that Allah says that even though it wasn't your bare hands that did it, but you did it, right? You hit, pulled a string that ignited dynamite that brought down a building, you know, so you can't say, well, it's indirect, it was grammar, you know, I just pulled a string, you know, but uh, my fault that the dynamite blew up the building. That's called mazik biyadayim. And, and all kinds of examples that the Gemara uses called mazik biyadayim, you're doing the damage with your hands. And Ramosha says that all those who are smoking and are causing this fellow damage, so they have a halacha of mazik biyadayim. So that was already a landmark movement by Moshe Feinstein in the direction of forbidding. So what did he forbid? He didn't forbid the others from smoking. He forbid the others from smoking in an area where non-smokers are there because they're injuring them. Okay, but what about injuring themselves? What about injuring themselves? Moshe did not issue a psaq in 1981. Now, Moshe passed away five years later, 1986, and um, in my uh, years with uh, Rav Tendler, uh, Rav Professor Moshe Tendler, so I, I studied by him at YU, but subsequently I've heard many, many lectures, both here in Eretz Yisrael and Chutzlaretz, on all kinds of in frameworks of uh, lectures. And uh, he once mentioned that Rav Moshe believed wholeheartedly that cigarette smoking is forbidden, but he, withdrew, he withheld from say, printing it, saying it so, and so, so categorically, because he knew how many Rabbanim and Rosh Hashiva smoke, that he felt that if he's going to say it's Asur, and they're not going to listen to him anyway, you know, he figured they're not going to listen to him anyway on this one, his whole authority is going to be undermined. Because once you start not listening to him on this, they're not going to listen to him on that, and he felt that his authority and, and his position amongst the Rabbanim and Rosh Hashiva could be undermined, and he felt, he felt it wasn't worth it. So he, he actually didn't go to full distance. Rav Tendler says he, he certainly identified with the viewpoint that it was forbidden. He just couldn't come out publicly to do so because of his position vis-a-vis other Rabbanim and Rosh Yeshiva, which is of great interest that Ramosha was concerned, was concerned about that. But that was 1981. Yeah? If you follow the logic, then smoking is a form of there's no question. The difference between suicide and smoking is the time factor. When you jump off the building, you, the time factor. When you jump off the building, you're dead in five seconds. When you smoke, you might be dead in 20 years. Right. It's a, it's a slow it's a slow death. It's a slow death. Right. right. I mean, the Batchanim, the comedians say, how come you don't make a Shechianu the first time you smoke a cigarette? Because we don't make brochas in the bathroom. <laughs> How come you don't make a Shechayanu? You heard? You're listening now? No? How come you don't make Shechayanu on the first cigarette that you smoke? Because we don't make brochas in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. Take a look at the second page. And let me introduce what the second page is. There is a, a wonderful institution... Uh, blocks away from here, I say again, Rechov Bruya, number two in Katamon, um, called uh, Eretz Chemda. Eretz Chemda was founded by an outstanding Torah luminary who passed away just a few years ago, Rav Shol Yisraeli, uh, who was a, originally a, um, a Rav of Kfar HaRo'eh, up a little bit for north of Tel Aviv. Uh, when Rav Neria Zatzal, the founder of Shiva Pnei Kiva, in that village, Kvaroe founded Shiva Pnei Kiva, the first one. 
So he brought in this Rav Chol Yisraeli to teach in the yeshiva. Later he taught in Midrashiyat Noam in Pardes Chana, another very well-known yeshiva high school. Ultimately he comes to Yerushalayim, becomes a Dayan. Rav Tzvi Yudha Kuk invites him to give a Shil Klali, a weekly public shir in Merkaz Arav Kuk, which he gave for about many, many, many years. He became a Dayan in the high court of the Beit Nagadol of the of Rabbanut Rashid, of the chief rabbinate. A very well-respected person, uh, printed many, many articles in Svarim. And he had this idea that world Jewry, specifically Rabbanim of world Jewry, uh, many times do not have the access to high-profile poskim. If you live in the New York City, in the days that I grew up, so, you know, you must probably had access to Rav Moshe Feinstein or the Rav one way or another, or some other Rav Hankins, that's all. You had great poiskim on the scene there, and whether you knew them personally or not, you always knew somebody who did know them. You can get your Shaila even to the top, to the top. If you're a Rav in town, for sure. Not a question about it. You're a Rav in New York City, you, yeah. You could call Rav Moshe on Anytime. the Rav Moshe was, was accessible. Rav Moshe Feinstein was accessible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he listened to people and so on. But, uh, you know, any shul rabbi in New York City, for sure, New Jersey, could call any of these great rabbis. But, you know, if you were rough in Guatemala, in somewhere in Buenos Aires, in, the, in Adeline, the Australia, wherever, you know, out in the boondocks, wherever, and you really didn't have access, you didn't know who to call, you had a shyly, you have a community where majority might not even, most probably not share Meshavas, and all kinds of scenarios occur that you as the Rav, you would like a halachic position on how to handle it. Now, so Rav Shol Yisraeli felt <coughs> there should be a type of clearinghouse of these kind type of shaylas, like having a bank, a clearinghouse, where these Rabbanim would, uh, would send their shaylot to this institution, where there's a very, very high-profile koilu with two very, very big Talmudah Chachamim on the helm, uh, Rav Ehrenreich and uh, Rav Yosef Carmel, and they will sit on the shilas and work on them and write up a tshuva. And then they would have it reviewed by a rabbinic board of giants, um, of, of people who we in our community are close with, one being, let's say, Rav Nachum Rabinowitz of, Ma- of Malay Adumim, and another um, of Rav Zalman Nechemi Goldberg, uh, who's the son-in-law of Rav Shalom Zalman Orbach, and other rabbinim of that league, of, uh, who, who would examine these tshuvot and offer their comments and... You know, sometimes we would object to it. Whatever it is, it is. It was a reaction. And th- this functions. This functions till this very day as a working, working uh, organization that funnels and processes Shalot. They've come out with already nine solid volumes of their response to literature, which only of late I've, I've come to appreciate it. It's on the internet. I don't have to buy one book. It's all free. You just have to print things out, like I printed out this page, page 104, in volume one of, of this. Uh, and because it, it had to do with the subject that we dealt with, on the Isu Ishun, the, the problem of smoking. And the question comes from Los Angeles. Los Angeles, Arzot Abrit, of Tafshin Nun. Tafshin Nun is 1990. 1990, so it's you know, pretty, pretty fresh Shaila. I mean, the cigarette might not be fresh anymore, but the Shaila is still pretty new. Los Angeles, Tzot uh, Now, the question here is not what the others, as we dealt with this morning, dealt with. It's not like, is, is, is it forbidden or is it not forbidden, uh, cigarette smoking? That, that's not what it is. It, the, the, the writers at Eretz Chimda assume that it's a sur. It's forbidden, for sure. So let's see what the shayla is. The shayla is 
Because we have concrete scientific and medical proof that the, the smoking causes a breakdown of one's uh, health and will cause death. Is it correct? When a person smokes, the person, the Jew who's smoking, is, is ruining the presence of God who resides in every single Jew. How can a person tolerate self-destruction? But what self-destruction? He's not talking about that he's going to die young. He's talking about the fact that he's destroyed the Rabbinish Lohelem in him. That there's in every, each and every one of us. And he's ruining that. Can we do anything about that? I mean, the angle that the questioner took here... I mean, assuming, obviously it's forbidden to smoke, not even a Shaila anymore in 1990, but what about what's going on in his neshama? The Shechina Hagara Betocho. So the response begins with, the local safek, no question, it injures and damages the body. Certainly, according to this, many, many poskim will relate to smoking, that it's forbidden to smoke because of two reasons. Aleph, nezek hanigram lesovavim. First, as we mentioned by Rabbi Feinstein, the, the passive smoker, there's the surrounding environment. Shezeh isur mena Torah, it's forbidden. Kemo shar dinei mazik, you are somebody who's causing damage. And bet, ha-isur al-atzmo, adam atzmo, you're damaging yourself. So what the, what the responders do here is they divide the question into two different parts. Let's talk about smoking first. So he said, with regard to doing damage to others, that's pretty clear that it's a sur. We have Rabbi Shafranshin and we saw, and there are others who said the same thing, Rav Waldenberg, the Tzitz Eliezer. But, you know, it's not so simple that it's a prohibited act in Torah to damage yourself. Not so simple. Take a knife, cut myself, not to commit suicide. Stop, stop. Uh, is that a prohibited act in the Torah? So there's a machloket on this, whether a person is prohibited from damaging himself. It's clear that it's not a mitzvah to damage yourself, that's for sure. But the question is, can you put your finger on a concrete prohibition in the Torah? So according to this koilo uh, there, they marshaled the sources, ultimately, that most of the poshkim say, yes, it's forbidden to, to, to damage yourself too. And uh, it's all under the line of you have to be careful about your health and so on. That's all very nice and dandy. But then it gets into towards the end of the tshuva, about four uh, paragraphs towards the end. He says, What's the chilul Hashem? Chilul Hashem is, you've got people out there looking at you as an example. You're a shining example of somebody who represents Torah, and you smoke, <laughs> it causes a blemish on the person's reputation. And if the person happens to be a Tamil Chochem, it's a blemish on Torah as well. So that might be already a, a, an act of Chil Hashem. And Chil Hashem, then they go into, what kind of Chil Hashem is this? The Gemara talks about the fact that uh, there's Chil Hashem if in a society where people don't pay uh, by, by credit, but they pay cash on site. But the Makolet guy knows you as the rough in town, so he lets you run up a bill. 
So the, the Gemara says that's a chil Hashem. Because people are going to think that maybe you're not paying. Maybe you're getting a free ride, a free lunch here. It's, it just doesn't show up good. Today it's not an issue. Because today everybody pays with credit card. Today if you pay with cash, people are going to look at you funny. But, uh, but uh, in the days of Chazal, it was not common that we paid on credit. You paid, you paid. You bought something, you paid. You shine. But, uh, but so the Gemara says if somebody does it, no, it's not, a, not the worst thing in the world. Tam does it. Oy. Well, same thing. You work. You walk outside. You have a little stain on your, on your garment. Not the worst thing in the world. A tamachacham has a stain on the garment. That's how he walks around. You know. Yeah. Why stop at smoking? What if a tamachacham is overweight? Okay, beseda. So the question is, what he can, whether he can do anything about that or not? You're right. Tamachacham is supposed to look, you know, put together nicely. It's supposed to look put together nicely. I remember when the Rav Zachan the Bracha would go out for the. Uh, the yard side chair on Gimel Shvat. So years before I even came into the picture, <laughs> I have pictures of it. The Rav he still used to wear just for that alone the yard chair and the Chuva drasha a kapota litvisha kapota. And I think he did it in honor of his father and grandfather, not because he needed. The Rav didn't wear a kapota, but it was a part of the you know the, the garb that he wore for it. But my days he didn't do it anymore. He just wore his regular suit. But I remember my brother telling me that when I bring the Rav for the shear, make sure there's no dandruff on his shoulder. Wipe off the jacket. I remember my brother telling this to me, the Rav's going to walk into that ulam of 3,000 people, he's going to look immaculate. Nobody's going to say he has dandruff on his shoulder. Just make sure the tie is right and uh, just put them together. Can you imagine? Because the Rav didn't have this on his mind. He had the Rambams in his mind. He was, he was like reviewing the shear, reviewing the shear, you know, and I'm helping him make a tie. You know, like, <laughs> just make sure it looks okay. Because there's a question of chil Hashem. It shouldn't look bad. You know, that's a, and, and so now the question was whether there's an aspect here of Chil Lashem, uh, if a person happens to be a Tamachacham. But then at the end, um, he says that, um, you know, there might not be an aspect of Chil Lashem because there are some views who say, even though it's not Lahalacha, that a person can damage himself, so a person can damage himself, that it's a lot of smoke, and nobody ever said that it's a Chil Lashem if he damages himself. All right, so you have this halachic uh, gymnastics going on here. But at the very, very end, he writes, It's like a, a tefillah that the Ruach Tuma should leave this world and the, and the, 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 chut, the, stre- the thread of, of haughtiness should leave between the lips. That means cigarettes should be abandoned from humanity. We know this from the Rosh Hashanah The bottom line is that um, he, he feels he feels that on the question of uh, are you damaging you know any type of neshama uh, uh, in him. So he addresses it uh, slightly by saying that this is something that. Uh, Akadosh uh, Baruch was interested that you should serve him and serve him in a healthy way. God gave us good health so that we can continue serving him. And if doing something that's going to uh, curtail our healthy life, it, what it means is we're going to have less opportunities to serve God in this world. And that's where the damage is. Yeah, Raksha. Many years ago, when my children were little, okay. I was a smoker. Okay. I had a neighbor who me, she saw me take a cigarette. She said to me, If you wanted to kill yourself, 
Wow, 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 wow. That was the last time. That was it. Home. See? And you're able to do it. That, and you're able to do it on the spot. On the spot. On the spot. Yeah. What about when was another halakhic principle used of um, not making an Easter that nobody will follow? That was used for a while for people who didn't want to prohibit smoking. They said you're not supposed to. But because that, that's something that uh, some of the Rabbanim were concerned about. Uh, but uh, of late, there are great Rabbanim who came out and said, you know, sorry, it's just too dangerous. And uh, I'll give you just two more names. One is the late chief, Sephardi chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, Rav Chaim Davil Alevi, who came out publicly in his Asel Harav series of Sfarim. It is Asur, but the most probably the more prominent is Rav Vosner, Zichron Levrach, who passed away just a few years ago, a great Paisik in Bnei Brak, who was 102 years old, and he was one of the last Talmidim of the Yeshiva Chachmi Lublin, of the Rabbeah Berlina Yeshiva in, uh, Meir Shapiro Yeshiva in uh, Lublin, um, and he wrote a significant tshuva, knowing fully well that his oilam, his tzibur, they smoke in Bnei Brak, but he didn't care, he had the guts to write and, and uh, emphatically that it's a biblical violation, it's Issa Doraita to smoke. So the problem is that, so how many people take that seriously? I've had a situations where people, in, I walk in Geula, and somebody comes up to me, he says, he wants to know, Yesh Ra'esh, do you have a match? So I said, uh, if I'd had, I wouldn't give it to you, because I'd be a misayeya ledvara veira, I'd be an accomplice to a crime. So that already begins a discussion. You know what? What's it? So we start talking. After twenty minutes, he regrets that he asked me for a, for a match. Right? Now continue smoking. Comes an argument. I, I, he says that the gedolim smoke. So I said they're also of Avera. That did it. That that it's, that was an explosion more than an ash from a match. They exploded. That's all. I said the gedolim So if the gedolim smokes, they're also Avera. That's all it is. When people think infallibility, you want infallibility, try the Vatican. The Pope is infallible, if you know Christianity. The Pope of, uh, of, of the Catholic Church, not the, the Protestants, but uh, the Catholic Church, infallibility. By us, there's nobody's infallible. Not Moshe, not Aaron, not David, not Shlem, all the Yishpizen all had something. They're all human, they all had something. So what's wrong to say that uh, they're doing a virus? Doing a virus, they should do tshuva. And the problem is that because they're leaders, they're choyteh umachteh yisarabim. They give justification for their Hasidim and their Talmidim yeah. to continue. And it's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. That's all. I need a conservative rabbi in the Jerusalem Post, Rabbi Hammer, to write this. That's also a Chil Hashem. Where's everybody else? So I decided I'm going to talk about it this week. Okay, so. <laughs> Oh, that's the one that's